Bless, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. We praise and thank you, O Lord, for providing us counsel, as this psalm declares. We read and meditate upon your word. We pray and put you first in our life and our thoughts. And so even in the middle of the night, you bring instruction into our hearts and you put confidence in us that we can trust you and not be shaken by this world. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You made known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And so as a result, you place great joy in our souls and this sense of security, as the psalmist declares, and this overflows in our life. And others see it and take notice of it. You've given us a hope and a confidence that goes beyond death. For now, we walk the path of life, and we will walk the path of eternal life with the fullness of joy and pleasure forevermore. And it's you, our Lord Jesus Christ, you have brought this psalm into open and clear fulfillment. And our faith and our trust in you and your cross and resurrection is strong. You have redeemed us, you've rescued us from sin, and you've given us justification and hope for a resurrected glory. And we pray all of this for your sake. Amen. Well, we're continuing in our study in the Gospel of Luke. So you can turn your Bibles there to Luke 20 or follow along in the printed text for you in your worship folder. So we're going to be talking about religious controversies today. You know, in the time of Jesus and in the time of Luke's writing, religious controversies were around as well. There are always religious controversies, many of them. And some are more significant than others, and it's always a challenge of wisdom to know when we should get ourselves involved in religious controversies. Um, sometimes it's just not worth the time. And it's important to consider how being involved in certain types of controversies might impact other people. Sometimes it can impact them for the positive. Sometimes it can really be disheartening to people to be involved in those controversies. And it's also important to think about how it impacts our own heart and our own soul when we involve ourselves in those controversies. Sometimes it's very enlightening and helpful to be involved in them. And other times it can be very discouraging and turn us into bitter Christians. But there are many controversies, of course, that can be substantially resolved uh, in this life, but there are many that cannot be. And there are some that can be resolved and the whole community could agree on the controversial uh, subject, but oftentimes that's not the case and it's really just finding what will settle in your soul for the time being. But just as it's true for us, and we know all of this by experience, it's been true for the people of God throughout the ages and at Jesus' time, and just as we will often say things like, well, when Jesus comes back, then it'll be all clear and he'll make it clear. Well, that was also the perspective at Jesus' time on when the Messiah would come. And the people in that day would often say, because of their messianic ideas about he would be the Messiah of all wisdom, that he would put an end to all the debates. The rabbis would stop arguing 
and the people would stop being confused because the Messiah would teach God's truth and we would know it clearly. Well, in our passage this morning, that's exactly what Jesus does. He brings amazing clarity to two religious controversies of his day. And he succeeds in confounding his enemies, and at the same time, he challenges his disciples, including us, that we should be amazed at his teaching, and that we should follow him and his guidance on discipleship in our lives. You know, as we go through the Gospel of Luke, and where this particular passage, these five controversies where Jesus is debating in his final week on the earth, we should notice the larger picture that Luke is painting. And that is that Jesus is the one who is in control of his cross. It's not the people who are his enemies. You might be tempted to think that, but as Luke tells us the story, it's very clear that Jesus is in control all the way to the very end. And we'll see that because both the traps today fail, and the leaders are left speechless. And Jesus is addressing two topics in our passage today. In verses 20 to 26, he's going to talk about the truth of our submission to God. And then in verses 27 to 40, he's going to talk about the truth of our resurrection hope that we have. Again, Luke is in the final days of Jesus' life on earth as he's telling us the story. But before we get to the heart of it, the cross and the resurrection, there's this brief ministry that Jesus has at the very end of his life, teaching in Jerusalem. And we've been examining the five controversies, and we'll hear one final sermon before we get into the Holy Passion. But what we've observed already in the first controversy, which is the most important one, is what authority does Jesus really have as the Son of God? The second controversy surrounded spiritual fruitfulness in the lives of the leaders and the people. And in that controversy, Jesus made it clear that there wasn't any to speak of well, today we're looking at two more controversies. We'll cover two today, and they're failed attempts to trap Jesus in them. Again, the topics are submission to God and to government, and the second is resurrection from the dead. So, the first controversy, let me read you the whole story, and then we will take a look at it. So, beginning in verse 20, So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful or not for us to give tribute to Caesar? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the, in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. And so in both of these controversies that we're looking at today, there's some kind of a tricky question or scenario presented, and then Jesus just cuts through it and brings clarity. So here we have a tricky tax question in verses 20 to 22, and then in verses 23 to 26, Jesus provides great clarity to it. So the leaders have just been exposed. So if you go back to verse 19, you see that the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. 
Okay, that's what happened last time, the parable of the wicked tenant farmers. And he exposed the scribes and the chief priests at that time. And so they decide, well, they're just going to send their disciples next time to trap Jesus. In fact, Matthew tells us that the Pharisees and the Herodians were both in on this. Mark tells us that the chief priests and the teachers and the elders were all in on it as well. And so there's spies that are being sent from all these different groups of people, all these leadership groups, who pretend that they're sincere, who pretend that they're righteous in their questioning of Jesus. And so a little bit of the backstory. So the Herodians were pro-Roman to a degree. And the Pharisees were reluctantly supportive of Rome. Of course, they get their support from them, so that's why. But, of course, they're opposed to the poll tax, which is what we're talking about here, the tribute tax or the census tax. It's a way that you impose upon a people that you conquer that they really belong to you as you make them pay this. So, however, the Pharisees and the Herodians, they, they could find justification for paying the tax if they needed to. And... It implies the submission to Rome, and of course, all the Jews are opposed to this, but there's nothing, nothing much they can really do about it, and that's what makes this a good trap, is because it's debatable about what you should do. You see, if Jesus supports the tax, he's going to be alienated from the populace, and that's, of course, would be the best answer that these spies are hoping for, is that Jesus just comes out and says that right away, because most Jews... And the law doesn't speak clearly to what they should do about this situation. But if he opposes the tax, well, then he's going to be accused of treason and liable to be handed over to Pilate, the governor. Now, you know the story. It doesn't matter what Jesus says. It doesn't matter one bit, because in two to three days from now, this is what happens. And they began to accuse him, saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. What a bunch of liars, right? Because we'll find out exactly what Jesus says. So it doesn't really matter what he's going to say in this moment. Well, the testers in our story begin with flattery, flattery that they themselves don't believe, but it functions to force Jesus to answer, and that's to call him teacher. Oh, but they don't learn from him. They just use that as a title to flatter him. Of course, Jesus sees through all that stuff. But it is true, everything that they say, even though they don't really believe it in their heart, that Jesus teaches the truth that he defers to no one and that he truly teaches God's way in all things. Well, the spies are baiting him to speak for God on the issue of the poll tax, in effect saying, well, give us God's opinion, teacher, on this poll tax that we're supposed to pay to Caesar Tiberius. Come on now, tell us the truth, and let's be bold about it. And they asked this question, and they put in the word lawfulness. Is it lawful? Well, this question has both legal implications and theological implications because it refers to both the Mosaic law and to Roman law. It's a very complicated matter if you throw in that word. And when they add in your English translation, you'll see it, or not. Tell us, is it lawful for us to pay this, or not? That or not is a way of saying, we don't want an explanation from you. We just want you to say yes or no. 
And you know, when people don't really care about answers, that's what they do. They just say, give us a simple yes or no. Because then they can spring their trap on him. Well, then Jesus answers them in verses 23 to 26. He perceived their craftiness and said to them, show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. He said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he had said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. So he masterfully you know, gets rid of this sinister dichotomy that they put before him. He perceives their craftiness, their malice, their wicked duplicity in this whole matter. And whether or not he just perceived that spiritually or he divinely saw into their souls, it's not clear here, but they're hypocrites and they don't want to answer. And as Matthew records the story, Jesus even calls them hypocrites publicly in front of people. You hypocrites, you don't want a true answer. And so he just moves to the point, and he proceeds to take over the discussion on his own terms. And he demands that they produce for him a denarius that they would use to pay the poll tax, the tribute, and then that they answer his question. But you see what Jesus is doing here? I mean, the fact that they have a coin ready to show him shows that they're already submissive to Rome because they're willing to use this pagan currency. It's irony on Jesus' part. And see, see what Jesus is now doing exactly what they were doing, he's going to bait them. And he's going to pull them into the way he wants the conversation to go. And so he simply asks them, so whose image is on here? What does the inscription on the coin say? And he's forcing them to be molded to his way of answering this question. Well, the reason that the coinage is so offensive to the Jews, and they don't want to pay the tax with it, is because it bears the image of the emperor. And so, and with the inscription, it ascribes deity and priesthood to the emperor. On the obverse of the coin, the front, it would say Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. On the reverse, the back side of the coin, it would say Pontifex Maximus, that is, high priest, supreme priest, with a picture of his mother, Livia, who is the incarnation of the goddess Pax, or peace. So you can see it's a pretty offensive coin for a Jewish person, for anyone who believes in one true God. So if they're so truly offended by the government and by this coin, well, then they should get rid of all the currency. They shouldn't even be using it at all. And that's his point when he gets to verse 25. But Jesus is very powerfully intimidating his opponents here. And he answers their original question very simply by saying, so pay the tax. That's what he says. And it's not just a witty response in what he's doing here. There are implications that go far beyond this about the political problems and the real issues that the people faced. Of course, there are many other questions because we live in two kingdoms, all of us do, the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of men. So who do you submit to? How? Under what conditions? You know, it's another topic for another day for us. But there's a lot more that Jesus is saying here than just simply pay the tax. But of course, his enemies are confounded. Look at verse 26. He says, they weren't able in the presence of the people to catch him on what he said. 
I'm sure they would have come up with something. But they're silent, marveling at how well he maneuvered that debate. You see, because the tax question is really a simple one anyway, but no matter what he said, remember, he's wrong in their eyes. But Jesus is saying, I hope you don't miss this, something way more powerful than that. He's saying that it's really not even about that. That's not the issue. The real issue is the phrase, render to God what is God's. You see, he's implicating the people in a much more serious moral failure than whether or not they pay the tax and use Roman coinage or don't. But that's the more serious failure of not giving God what he deserves. That is everything, all of themselves. And you see, if we take this whole idea of whose image or whose likeness is on the coin, well, whose image or whose likeness were you created in? So if the coin belongs to Caesar, well, then people who bear the image of God in creation, in God's likeness, they belong to God. Everyone belongs to God. They belong to God. And Christians, of course, yes, we must be careful to serve Caesar and honor God in a manner that honors him, but far more important is to be careful to serve and obey God in all areas of our life. You see, you're not a righteous Christian just because you pay your taxes. Here is the most important point, and that's rendering to God what is God and to give him everything from our life through Jesus Christ. We should find ourselves just like the Pharisees and the whole, all the leadership groups and the spies were just amazed at Jesus' teaching of the truth here. Luke wants us to be amazed at what Jesus says here, but he wants us to be even more amazed at that whole thing about we bear the image of God. And in Christ, of course, we're being perfected. And so we want to follow his guidance and his discipleship demands on our life. Well, that's the first controversy. The second controversy is about our hope in the resurrection. And so we'll read that story to you now. It says, Then there came to him some Sadducees who deny that there is a resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore, because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. So again, in the verses 27 to 33, we see this uh, resurrection absurdity uh, argument that the Sadducees put forward, and then Jesus cuts through it all in his answer uh, and gives amazingly clear truth in verses 34 to 40. And so the Sadducees are the 
the priestly leaders. Yeah, there are a lot of groups of leaders in this time and in this place, but you could think of them as aristocrats because they thought they were. So it's a good way to think of them. So they're the aristocratic type of that time. They lost control, though, uh, of the religious populace to the Pharisees. That group won over. And uh, this test centers on a contemporary debate that they had going on. That is about the resurrection, if there is one or not. And the Sadducees and Pharisees debated this um, and many other things as well. Uh, They were political enemies and they were religious enemies. They did not like each other. In fact, you might remember the story later on in Acts 23 where Paul perceives he's on trial and he perceives that there are both Pharisees and Sadducees in the room, so he brings up the resurrection just to get everybody mad. And it worked, you know. So they don't like each other about this. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection or the resurrection. They believed that the body and soul both perished at death. There'd be no rewards, no punishment. There's no new future state uh, to experience. But the Pharisees would appeal to passages like these in the Old Testament in Isaiah 26, 19. Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is as a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Seems clear. Um, Deuteronomy, or not Deuteronomy, Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. You see, but the Sadducees had the best answer to this anyway. Well, you know, that's not as inspired as the Pentateuch. Yeah, yeah. So whenever you want to get out of an argument, you just sort of deny one part of the Scripture as being as inspired as the rest. And so they favored the Pentateuch uh, as more inspirational, if you will. And so they didn't really take the prophetic witness of Isaiah and Daniel seriously. And so as a result, of course, if you now limit it, it's like, hey, prove the resurrection from the first five books of the Bible, it gets a little bit more difficult. So the Sadducees' test on this uh, resurrection, did you, could you catch it again? This insincere respect, calling Jesus teacher. It's in there again. It's precisely Jesus' teaching authority that they want to overthrow. And so they see an opportunity because Jesus just triumphed over the Pharisees in the tax question. And, uh, and so they think, well, let's continue the humiliation process here and talk about this one. And so the test begins... They quote Deuteronomy 25. There's a big section in there about what's called leveret marriage or brother-in-law marriage, but you'll get the idea here. So in Deuteronomy 25, starting in verse 5, it says, If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, and then it goes on and on and on about the right of refusal. There's a lot of shame that comes from refusing to do this, but of course the person's doing it because they want to preserve economic advantage. Well, anyway, this obligation, usually that of the younger brother, of raising up children for his older brother who died, was for the sake of that brother, the sake of the widow, and the sake of the covenant promises to the people of God. Now, this practice actually predates the law. So it was a practice among the ancient Near Eastern peoples that then, when the law was given, regulates that for the people. Uh, One example in the Old Testament comes from Genesis 38, 
And you see Judah's uh, son Onan for his brother Ur with Tamar. And uh, that's probably the most famous one. You can read that in Genesis 38 on your own. But then by the time, you know, you sort of work your way down through history, the Mishnah, which are the rabbinical writings, they further extend the right of refusal. In other words, they give men more outs on this obligation uh, to their brother. And it continues on um, because there's profit to be made. And because of the current situations at the time of Jesus here, and that the fact that this was given way back in an ancient context, and of course, man's desires, and of course, rabbinical teaching that just provides more and more loopholes, the practice actually probably wasn't seen in Jesus' day. And so even that was a matter of debate itself at the time. But anyway, the Sadducees used their stock hypothetical case. So... They love this. This is like their favorite argument against the resurrection. So they got this stock case. You know, if you get trained as a Sadducee, everybody learns to use this one. You know, this is a great argument. It's an argument ad absurdum. In other words, you take it to absurdity. And so they say, well, there are seven brothers, all of whom end up having one woman according to this, this law. And so it's a common argument, as I said, of theirs. And they're proud of themselves because they think by the fact that they laid out this, this crazy argument about having this woman having all these husbands, that it just makes the resurrection look silly. It just looks silly. Why would you believe in that? And so their argument supposes that the resurrection state, of course, would be just like or very similar to our current state, assuming that there's monogamous marriage and there's sexual union involved, and therefore in the resurrection state, this woman would be involved in grave immorality. And of course, the Pharisees, you know, they're smart too. And, you know, one of the common arguments that you could use against this is, well, we're just going to say, well, she's married to the first one. I mean, you don't have to follow their, their silliness in this argument. But the Sadducees thought they could triumph over Jesus in this debate, make him look like a fool, and isolate him from the people just like they would do with others. And so, but again, Jesus uh, is amazingly clear in how he cuts to the, to the truth in verses 34 to 40. So let me read that to you again. And Jesus said to them, Well, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore, because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, he's not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well. For they no longer dared to ask him any question. So Jesus' answer is based upon a significant contrast between life in this age and life in the coming age. And it's because of this that the Sadducees' little argument doesn't stand up. And in fact, Jesus makes it clear that the doctrine of the resurrection does stand up, and it's clearly taught in the Old Testament. In fact, He'll take their little gambit and say it's even taught in the Pentateuch, even in Moses. So Jesus makes it plain that the resurrection state is not simply a continuation of the present state, as many people might have thought, especially in regard to marriage and sexual relationships. And yet, we know that it's true, speaking for ourselves, just so we know, is that we're certainly going to remember and know and be loved by our spouse uh, 
or in the future states because there's a real continuity of personhood in the resurrection. That's the point. Same body and soul. But there's not going to be death, and there's not going to be a need for procreation in the new state of things. Well, anyway, the Sadducees are misguided in their assumptions. Many of them, actually. Jesus picks on more than one thing in here um, as we go along. He'll expose more. So, first of all, in the resurrected state, Jesus says it will be similar to angels. He says that on purpose because the Sadducees didn't believe in angels. Yeah, so he loves doing this kind of thing. So, but he says that they're going to be like angels, at least in one regard, and that is he brings out the topic of immortality. And then he quotes the fact that they're a term that's used for angels in the Old Testament, sons of God. And of course, in our final state, um, we receive our full inheritance and the full salvation. That's the goal of our salvation is we too are called sons of God in a different sense. And he says, he uses this phrase, sons of the resurrection, as another title for us, referencing a final new birth, if you will. Better than the angels, actually, uh, in, in all ways. So, don't miss this. <clears throat> by the way, another assumption that is wrong by these Sadducees is that they think that they're worthy. So that's why Jesus says, those who are worthy, because he's picking on the Sadducees. They think they're so righteous and better than other people. Well, that's why he says, if you're worthy, you'll attain to it, because he's saying you're not worthy. Well, the comparison then here is obviously not between angels and their sexuality, but with angels and immortality. Uh, Nevertheless, it's probably good to clarify a few things here. This doesn't mean that in the resurrection we become sexless beings or androgynous beings or something like that. And it doesn't necessarily imply the same thing about angels, that they're that way. And it's certainly misguided that it's in our popular lore, even in our culture, that somehow when you die you become an angel. That is not true. So, well then next, Jesus references Exodus 3, verse 6 from the Pentateuch, which they highly regarded, these Sadducees did. And so he takes Moses and he turns Moses back on them themselves. So these words were spoken to Moses at the burning bush hundreds of years before these three patriarchs died. I mean, after their death. I mean, it's a long time. And so he's saying if you look back at the text, the syntax, the construction, if you will, is in the present tense. And that's the way the, the Greek translation, the Septuagint, even takes it. And Jesus argues that this itself is a promise of the resurrection to come. In this line of argument, he's not using it to try to just simply say, oh yeah, their souls are still alive. Right? According to Jesus, though, they're not dead. They're alive with God, but they're awaiting the resurrection day. So the choice then is between a full bodily resurrection resulting and reuniting with the soul or nothingness. This is Jesus ad absurdum argument. So they like that kind of argument where you take something to an absurd case. Well, that's what Jesus does here in a way, and he's saying, in Mark it's recorded, you are greatly mistaken. You know, Exodus 3, 6 only makes sense, Jesus is saying, if you accept my interpretation. And especially in the progress of Revelation, because the prophets do speak for God and speak God's word. Well, the argument of Jesus gets even more sophisticated than that at another level. 
of course, because this phrase in Exodus 3.6 that he talks about, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is, is a way of referring to the covenant promises that are given to his people. And so then another question comes up. It's like, well, if there is no resurrection, Sadducees, then what about all those covenant promises and blessings to the patriarchs? I mean, they're really not worth a whole lot then, are they? Because if all they relate to is this present life, because there's no resurrection, nothing after death, well, then there's sort of worthless benefit to it, really, very short-lived. And in, in fact, it's a constant theme, the resurrection, in the Psalms. So let me give you a few of them, for example. Psalm 16.10, which we read already this morning. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You will make known to me the path of life in your presence. There's fullness of joy at your right hand, our pleasures forevermore. Psalm 17, 15. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness when I awake. I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Psalm 49, 15. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. And Psalm 73, 23. Nevertheless, I am continually with you, you hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You see, the prominent view at the time of Jesus was that after people died, they lived some kind of a shadowy existence in Sheol until the resurrection. So a lot of it unclear in their thinking. Unclear because the fullness of revelation had not come yet, but the doctrine of the resurrection would be fully explained and revealed and understood after Jesus' own resurrection would come. And we'll get to that when we get to the end of the Gospel of Luke. But nevertheless, even though clarity wasn't there, like we have clarity today on it, it was still the strong eternal hope of the people of God, as we've seen in just a few of the passages I've quoted for you from Isaiah from Moses, from the Psalms, that the righteous people of God throughout the ages have trusted in this. Now, when you get to the end of this little debate, it's highly unlikely that Jesus won over the Pharisees, I mean the Sadducees. It's probably he didn't convince the Sadducees. But he certainly amazed the crowds, and he probably really actually pleased a lot of the Pharisees. Like, oh, this is a good argument. I'm going to use this one next time. So, Luke records the end of the discussion with no one asking any more questions. And so we read again, you know, at verse 40, they're done with these controversies that they bring up because he's bringing up the next one. But verse 40 says, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. Not the Pharisees, not the scribes, not the Sadducees, not the elders, not the Herodians, not the Zealots, etc. Pick any leadership group you want to pick. No one. They all failed in their attempts to trap Jesus. And we've heard Jesus on the truth of the resurrection hope this morning. That's our hope. And it's our hope based on the promises that come from our God, the God of the covenant. And we enter into that hope by Jesus Christ, by faith in his cross and his resurrection, for the forgiveness of our sins and for the granting of his righteousness to make us worthy 
as he mentions in the scriptures. And with this faith comes hope in the promise of eternal life, the resurrection glory of Jesus himself. And our coming glorified existence is one in which we will have the same body and soul, but they'll be glorified. We won't suffer weakness, sickness, pain, death, or deformity. We'll be completed in our thorough sanctification, conformed to the very image of Christ. And God will be glorified in His plan and His purposes in our eternal salvation in Jesus. And He'll fulfill at this time all of His covenant promises for us, especially that promise repeated in the New Testament where He says, I will be their God and they will be my people. He will grant us our eternal inheritance at the final stage of redemption. So we have to have such a hope as the end of our faith in Jesus Christ. In Philippians 3.20, it says this, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So as we read this passage, verses 20 to verse 40, this morning, one thing should really stand out above so many other things in this passage, and that is the silence. The silence at the end of both of the controversies. In verse 26, they weren't able, in the presence of the people, to catch him. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. In verse 40, they did not dare ask him any more questions. And so the title of our passage this morning is that Jesus amazes everyone with truth. And surely he passed those two tests, living in two kingdoms, the real hope of the resurrection. These controversial traps of the religious leaders failed. They rather backfired upon themselves. And he didn't just pass these tests, Jesus. He surpassed the tests. He triumphed over them gloriously in his wisdom. And I hope it's become true, just as we've seen at the beginning, that we find ourselves amazed at Jesus' teaching about the truth and find ourselves challenged and eager to follow him as a disciple of his and to grow in that. And so I think these types of things, these two areas are areas that we can ponder in prayer, let's say, over the coming week. What is Jesus' truth and wisdom that he's teaching here regarding the kingdoms and regarding the resurrection? You think about the first test of the kingdoms. It's really about devotion, ultimately, isn't it? Who are you devoted to? And how do we submit ourselves, render ourselves, pay tribute, if you will, to God more so? We bear his image, and in Christ we're his own. What does it mean to be fully devoted to God? Something to pray about as you reread this passage on your own even. And Jesus, secondly, in his truth and wisdom that he provides on this test of the resurrection, that's really about hope. Where is your hope? What is your ultimate hope? How do you view death? Your own. How do we maintain this hope and, and nurture our growth in God so that we live not just for this life, but we live for eternal life? and the glory that's coming in the resurrection. 
That's something to ponder in prayer, and you can read the second controversy that we looked at today. And uh, as you ponder in prayer those questions, and you read the Scripture, God will help you see new things and help you grow. So we come now to celebrate the Lord's Supper at this point in our service this morning, as we always do on the first Sunday of the month. And think about it, how it ties in here this morning. It's pretty simple, because this table is an expression of our devotion to God, that Christ bought us with his blood, and that we are now celebrating that together. So it's an expression of devotion, and we come to this table because we want to gain more hope. That's why we celebrate it so frequently as God's people, is because it tells us that there's more to come. I mean, look at this. We call this a meal. This is a token meal, right? For all the glories and the pleasures that are going to be ours in the coming kingdom. So if those who are helping me with communion would please come forward.